thanks to our musicians tonight. Appreciate that. Dr. Eyes on his way to a conference. He'll be there all week, and he won't be with us next Sunday either. Great to be able to have those who are able to fill in very adequately, and we appreciate that, that great music tonight. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're excited because we get to turn to your word now. Thank you for the fact that it is truly that. It is your word. It's not some human concoction that people have come up to try to make sense of everything that goes on. It's a direct love letter that you've given to us, your children. Help us to learn tonight from it. Help us to be honest and introspective as once again we need to grapple with the truths that are here and make application with the help of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Waking up the dead church. Appreciated the appropriateness of the music tonight. How can you get any better than wake up uh, when we're looking at the passage in front of us now? Let's turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. In our study of Revelation so far, and particularly in chapters 2 and 3, we're going to be looking at the fifth of seven of the churches in Asia Minor that are directly addressed by the Lord Jesus. And this will be the letter to the church at Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete which means really to, to fill a container or a hollow place, but it's not doing that. It's not filling the container. It's not filling the hollow place. I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent if you will not wake up. I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So the church at Sardis had something. It looked like it was pretty good, but not to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus understood that this whole thing is a mirage. He understood that it was a fiction. It was a pretense. It was not reality at all. It was really a hypocrisy of the church. They had a great reputation. They looked real good, but the Lord Jesus knew that deep down inside they were not. Everything about that good reputation that they had was something that was undeserved at this particular point. We understand that not everything is as it appears. I'm sure all of you understand as we look around tonight, everybody has a good smile on. We greet each other real nicely. Uh, we understand it's not always as it appears because some people could be hurting very deeply. Some people could be involved in things they shouldn't be involved in. Some people are very guilty. We understand that, that not everything is as it appears. Let me illustrate that. The proprietor of a French restaurant that I read about had come up with a gimmick that doubled his clientele in just a matter of weeks. 
He did something, though, that wasn't exactly as it appears. When a man came in with his girlfriend or with a woman with him, a smiling waiter handed each one of them an ornate menu. The menus look exactly alike, but the one given to the man has the genuine prices listed for each item, while the lady friend's copy shows the same entrees, but at fictitious and highly inflated prices. As the man orders, the girl is amazed at his generosity. Not everything is as it appears. Sardis was one of those things. It was not as it appeared. Destination, as we're following through an outline on each of these churches, a destination. Sardis was 50 miles east of Smyrna, 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. And if we want to take a look once again on the map, you can see the trade route that they used to go through. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. That's the same way that the letters are arranged. And we're coming to Sardis. You can see how it's located with regard to some of the other letters to the churches that are and, and some of the locations to those places. Interesting that just 700 years before this letter to Sardis, it had been one of the greatest cities in the world. It had an almost insurmountable defensive position. This is just to give you a little feel for it, because in order, and this is after ruins had taken over, but for people to be able to somehow come against Sardis, they would have to come up this cliff, and it was believed to be impossible for that to happen. It was believed it was impossible until it actually happened. It stood 1,500 feet high, and the sides of the ridges were thought to be very, very smooth. I'm going to put some names on the screen in succession as we go through a little bit of the history of Sardis because it's appropriate to what's going on at the present when this is going to be written. There was a man by the name of Croesus who was the greatest of the Sardian kings. He invited, because he wanted to show off, he invited Solon, who was reputed to be the wisest of the Greeks, to come and view his riches. And we understand there have been times before, Nehemiah, an example in the Old Testament, when you want to show off to somebody, be very careful because pride has a way of being attacked. Well, Solon was invited to come and view the riches of Croesus and what was going on in Sardis at that time. Remember, we're 700 years before this letter to Sardis. Solon tried to warn Croesus of impending danger. He could see decay and he could see softness all around and it concerned him. Croesus couldn't see that, but Solon was able to see that. Croesus ignored the warning and began a war with Cyrus of Persia. He had the audacity to invade Cyrus' territory. He was routed, and then he was forced to retreat back to Sardis, his seemingly impregnable stronghold. Well, he ran and he was chased because Cyrus then began a siege of Sardis. And for 14 days he waited. He offered a reward to any of his people who could figure out a way to somehow get to this city, which seemed impossible. Somebody had an idea. They attacked. It didn't really work out. And so as he waited after those 14 days, there was, even though there was that cliff and that steep hill, it had developed faults. And cracks. One day a Sardian soldier accidentally dropped his helmet over the cliff. He made his way down a crack in order to pick that up. One of the soldiers of the army of Cyrus noticed this 
and he reasoned there must be a crack in the rock that would gain entry to his forces. He incidentally got a nice reward for his discovery because that night a group of Persian soldiers made their way through this crack and came up on top of Sardis. They found it completely unguarded. Why would you guard something that nobody can get to anyway? Well, Sardis fell to Persia because their defenders had become too complacent. They didn't feel they needed a guard. They were getting soft. They weren't all they were reputed to be. Now, this is 700 years before. Their reputation was undeserved then, militarily and politically. And we see the same thing now. They were not all that they were supposed to be. The impregnable city suffered the same fate as the unsinkable Titanic. Uh, it's tough when people start making some of those claims that, that there's nothing that can happen to them. Well, interestingly enough, in 2014 now, now we're getting closer to the time this letter was written. We're only about 300 years away. In 214 B.C., the city was defeated yet again, this time by Antiochus, actually this is Antiochus III, when the watchman on the wall failed to see an enemy was sneaking into those insurmountable hills. Uh, one of the commentaries that I, I just purchased recently, James Hamilton has a, a very nice commentary on Revelation, and he quotes the Greek historian Polybius, who tells how this happened. He says, a soldier in Antiochus's army found a place on the wall of Sardis that was altogether unguarded because of the extreme precipice near it. When the army mounted an attack on the gate of the city, which was just a subterfuge, then that soldier and his comrades mounted ladders at the unguarded point, entered the city, opened the gates for the army of Antiochus. Similar but not exactly the same strategy as before, but in this case the end result was exactly the same. The city was in trouble. History then repeated itself a third time, but not militarily and politically, but now it's going to be spiritually, and it's with the church that is at Sardis. The Sardian church was exactly the same way. And in fact, this little delving into history helps us to understand. Any of you have a note in the ESV study Bible? It says this, Sardis is captured twice in its history while watchmen neglected their duty became a cautionary tale of misguided complacency and lack of vigilance. Although Jesus' rebuke here identifies no specific source of attack, this congregation was similarly asleep at death's door. Sardis was later destroyed by an earthquake, and that took place in A.D. 17, but it was rebuilt by the Romans. It never achieved its former glory, but by the time this was written in Revelation chapter 3, they had attained a certain measure of glory. They were, they were still uh, a city that was being able to make out well financially, and they had some good trade things that were going on with them. And uh, particularly in jewelry, and textiles and dyes, they were supposed to have been the ones who created dyeing at that particular time. Sardis was also known for the worship of the goddess known as Sibylle. Now we mentioned before that with each one of these letters, there's a description of Christ that exactly fits with the message that will be given to that particular church. And so the description of Christ here in verse 1, it's really twofold. It's the one who has seven spirits of God and also the one 
with the seven stars. He has the seven spirits of God and he has the seven stars. He's in possession of them. First of all, the one who has the seven spirits of God, that, of course, is a reference to the totality, the completeness of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the scriptures, we see the Holy Spirit referred to several times in a sevenfold manner, again, because he is so complete and so full. The sevenfold spirit is pictured in several different ways in scripture. As I mentioned, one of them in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, you can count seven references to the spirit in these words as I read Isaiah 11, 2. And the spirit of the Lord, that's one, shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, often referred to as the sevenfold spirit of God. Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1 for just a moment, we've already seen it in Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. As you see it again now, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We don't believe that that is seven spirits. That's one spirit, but again, in his completeness, in that sevenfold completeness. We're going to, Lord willing, get to Revelation 4, verse 5 at some point. And when we get there, if you'll turn there now, though, Revelation 4, 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Once again, symbolic of the completeness of the sevenfold spirit of God. And again, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, we'll see something similar. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The point of all of this as Jesus describes himself, and he says, the one who has the seven spirits of God, it's that he sees everything that goes on everywhere. He knows everything that goes on everywhere. And even though the church at Sardis can fool a lot of people with a good reputation, they can't fool the Lord Jesus, described with this all-penetrating seven spirits of God that are there with him. He knows exactly what is going on. He's not fooled by a reputation. He knows what is at the core of that church and every church and every individual. Because we're going to see a little bit later on in verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's not just a church that is in view. It's everybody who has an ear is going to be hearing about this as well. So once again, we can fool others, but we don't really fool ourselves and we certainly don't fool God. Some of you may recognize this name, John Wooden. How many of you remember that name? Okay, John Wooden, uh, the Wizard of Westwood, the greatest college basketball coach, I think nobody would argue with this, that ever existed. And at the same time, a very fine Christian man. So John Wooden, who actually lived from 1910 until 2010, he believed that character is far more important than reputation. And here's what he used to tell his players. Your reputation is what you're perceived to be by others, 
but your character is what you really are. You're the only one that can know your character. You can fool others, but you can't fool yourself. And this was a great coach, but he was also a great discipler. He was a man of integrity. But once again, your reputation is what you're perceived to be by others, but your character is what you really are. And that penetrating look of the Lord Jesus understands our character. And our reputation can fool a lot of people, but our character is not going to fool him, and it's not going to fool us either. So here we see a portrait of Christ as the one who can penetrate into the real part of this church despite its favorable outward appearance. He saw the inward deadness and decay of this church, as he does with individuals. Points out that the judgment coming from Jesus will be accurate. It will be righteous. He's not guessing. He's not making any assumptions. He knows exactly what is going on. That's why this letter is almost empty of any commendation. It is a letter of rebuke. It's one of the two worst of the seven letters. In the other churches we've seen, evil had been the exception rather than the rule. Here it was the rule, and Jesus knew it. Jesus is also described here as the one holding the seven stars or messengers or pastors of the churches. This was, again, his church. He's the one who needs to be satisfied. He's preeminent in the spiritual realm and in the life of that church. Now, in each of the churches, we're looking also, as we go through our outline, we're looking at a commendation. Oops. Can't find much of a commendation here in this church. You can look. There's very little good to be said about the church. They had a good reputation, but since it wasn't real, that couldn't be considered a commendation. Having a good reputation that's empty... No, that's not, certainly that's not a commendation. But here's the only real commendation in verse 4. A few people in the church hadn't soiled their clothes. A picture of those who hadn't been tainted by sin. A few of the people in the church. We like to refer to that sometimes as a remnant. God always seemed to have a remnant with his people, the Israelites. God has a remnant in churches as well. And this particular church... A very few people hadn't soiled their clothes. That means the rest of the people had dirty clothes. I say, well, do we take that literally? No, obviously that's not a literal explanation. But what we want to make sure is that we understand that those people were soiled with sin and with the world. That's what the word means. It means to be stained or defiled or to be made impure. So most of these people in that church only looked good. You know, it's not too hard to look good and fool others. There are many among us who could be looking great and be fooling us. There's a true story of a lady by the name they referred to her as Madame Mojeska, a Polish actress who was a guest at an evening party at English-speaking people. The admiring company were pestering her for a recitation from some play. She had quite the reputation at the time, and they just wanted her to do something, anything, so that they could see her in action. She at first declined. She said that she might not be able to perform as well as they thought she would because she was not with her usual kind of props and that sort of thing. Didn't have the stage settings, didn't have the lights, didn't have anything like that. But they continued to pester her, 
And so insistently, she finally acquiesced. And she announced, though, that she would recite this in her native tongue in Polish to this English-speaking group. Her hearers sat listening to her, and they were spellbound. Some of them were even moved to tears. When she finished, she was asked the name of the touching story she had related. She smiled and she said, I counted in Polish to 100. If you stop and think about that for a moment, it's easy to fool people. It's easy to be thought something that you're not really. Condemnation is next. And we're jumping around a little bit, but the condemnation comes in verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Despite a reputation for being a live church, here they are. They're declared dead, although they still had a spark of life. This isn't the final death. They were terminally ill. They were on life support. They were in a deep coma. But they weren't yet dead. There was still a little bit of life there. But it's like telling somebody who's been bitten by a venomous snake, um, you're a dead man. Well, he's not actually dead, but if he doesn't get help, he will be very, very shortly. And that's what's happening here. Some of you know the name John Walford. He's also written a, a commentary. This is an older one on Revelation. And he says something that I find disturbing. I find disturbing because Alden Union Church, let's look at us for just a minute. We have a great reputation. Do you realize that? Alden Union Church has a great reputation. Everywhere I go, anywhere in the world, people have heard of Alden Union Church. They know of the ministry here. So Alden Union Church has a great reputation. But the question that we have to keep asking ourselves, is it deserved? Is it something that when Jesus looks at this church and at us as individuals, is our reputation the same as the reality of that? And here's something disturbing words by John Wolverd, only because they point us inward and we've got to constantly be evaluating. And he says, this searching judgment of Christ as it relates to the church of Sardis, is one to be pondered by the modern church, which often is full of activity, even though there is little that speaks of Christ in spiritual life and power. Barclay observes that a church is in danger of death when it begins to worship its own past, when it is more concerned with forms than with life, when it loves systems more than it loves Jesus Christ when it is more concerned with material than spiritual things. And that's the danger that every church faces. Alden Union Church faces that danger. Pray for the leadership of the church as we constantly are examining ourselves. We don't want to be Sardis. And yet, so many churches are today. And so many churches are on the way to being Sardis again. And we don't want that to be the case. Another older commentary on Revelation written by Layman Strauss Talking of Sardis, he said, it had a reputation for being a progressive church. No doubt others in the surrounding communities were noticing. It was engaged in all those activities that characterize a live church. Most people had a high estimate of this church. Had you been moving from any one of the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, or Thyatira to Sardis, your pastor would no doubt have suggested that you attend this church. Big problem here. Sardis may have been the first church in the history of Christendom to have been just about filled with what we call today 
nominal Christians. Don't you hate that word? A church filled with nominal Christians. Not a church filled with disciples or followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but a church filled with those who were simply nominal. They went through the motions. They probably knew all the right things to say. But were they really followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, really disciples? How do Christians in churches become dead? What do we have to guard against so that we don't become dead as individuals and then collectively as a church? A couple of things that specifically use the word death with regard to the behavior of Christians. Three scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 6. You see the verse that is on the screen. There's a verse that comes before that. It's talking about widows and the proper behavior of widows. Behavior of widows. And uh, a proper widow, a real widow, has set her hope, verse 5 says, set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. That's what they describe as a real widow. Verse 6, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So it's safe for us to say living for pleasure is one of those signs of the death of an individual Christian or a church. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 22, the Lord Jesus is speaking to a wannabe disciple who doesn't want to be quite enough. And the Lord Jesus said to him, follow me. He wanted to go home and bury his father first. And he said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I think it's safe to say that that's somebody living for this world. That's another danger to death. In James chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Then when desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death, spiritual inadequacy, the inability to do anything for the Lord, to just kind of hang around there and do nothing. How Christians become dead, living for pleasure, living for the world, getting entangled with sin. And there's certainly more, but those specifically use the word dead. It's quite likely that our churches today have those who look alive, but they're dead. People can be fooled by appearances. Do you realize you could be sitting now right next to a dead person? Right now you're sitting next to a dead person. Do you realize that could happen? Do you realize, though, that the person sitting next to you could also be sitting next to a dead person? Do you know who that is? That's you. Do you realize the danger that is really there? We've got to be very, very careful. And remember that Jesus knows. We can fool each other, but Jesus knows. Each of the letters we think in terms of an exhortation. Okay, what do we do about this? There's a problem that comes to light. What is it that we're supposed to do about it? And here in verses 2 and 3, there are really five specific commands that were given. Mickey, tell us the first one in two words. It's, you sang it. Wake up. <laughs> Thank you. Wake up, meaning to be watchful, to be sleepless because you're so intent on accomplishing something very specific. So it's wake up, Strengthen what remains and is about to die. You haven't quite flatlined yet, 
but it's oh so close. The undertaker's already been called. The hearse is waiting outside the intensive care unit. You're just about gone. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Jesus said, I've not found those good-looking deeds of yours to be complete. Hasn't been fulfilled. The container is not full, and it's supposed to give the impression that it is. How many of you would be unhappy if you went to get a gallon of milk? And you came, and the container was one quarter full. Would you be upset with that? Okay, well, how about half? Would you be upset with if it were only half full? How about if it were three quarters full? Would you be upset then? I would be. If it were milk, I'd be upset if there was a teaspoon missing. That's the point that is here. The Lord Jesus says, this is not something that your works are not complete in my sight. He doesn't give us a percentage. He doesn't give us specifics here to Sardis. But with the work of the Holy Spirit, he can put a finger on each of our lives and help us as we evaluate our church, as we evaluate each other, to understand how easy it is to be incomplete or unfulfilled, as it may say here. So wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you received and heard. That is, remember what you've been taught. And then it says keep it, which literally means to obey it. And then it talks about the need to repent, go in a different direction, recognize a change of attitude that will lead to a change of action. If they don't wake up, Jesus will come as a thief, and they will not know when that will be. In Sardis, they understood that. They understood because they had been invaded surreptitiously a couple of times by the enemy. They understood what it was like to be surprised. They also understood the thieves in the hills that would constantly at that time come down and raid the people and plunder what was, what, what was their possession. When Jesus pays a visit, as he threatens to do here, we can have different reactions to that. How you react to the promise of his coming will help you to evaluate your spiritual condition. To the majority in Sardis, Jesus' coming would not be welcome. To a few people with clean clothes, he would be welcome at any time. Some of you read Our Daily Bread. David McCaslin wrote a devotional one time. He, he, he mentions on February 26, 1993, powerful bomb exploded in the underground parking garage of the World Trade Center in New York City, killing six people and injuring more than a 1,000. It sparked an aggressive investigation with many arrests. But few law enforcement authorities recognized it as part of an international terrorist plot. When the Trade Center towers were destroyed by terrorists in 2001, Police Commissioner Raymond Kelly looked back on the first attack and said, it should have been a wake-up call for America. Sardis was given a wake-up call. In the providence of God, he's intersected with us tonight to give us a wake-up call. As a church as individuals as well. It is time for us to wake up and strengthen what remains and to remember what we've been taught, to obey it, and if there's a problem, to repent from that. I wish I could tell you the story of Sardis had a happy ending. It, it really didn't. Um, when I read, I research, and I find the word ruins a lot. There's another, another city today nearby called Sart. 
But Sardis, the church, didn't make it neither to the city. There's an expectation of promise here as we conclude in verses 4 and 5. Those who are maintaining what they're supposed to maintain for the Lord, those who are living for Him, those who don't have dirty clothes, those who are tied clean or all clean, if you go back to the old detergent commercials, uh, those people are given some promises. They're given promises that they're going to be able to walk with Jesus dressed in white, portraying purity, showing their character on display, sins forgiven, and the name of a conqueror, or in some of your translations, it will be the one who overcomes. That name would never be blotted out of the book of life. One of the commentaries, in fact, many of the commentaries will talk right here and say, your name won't be blotted out of the book of life. Does that mean people whose names are in the book of life can have their names blotted out? Does that mean you can lose your salvation? And I want to assure you that that's not the teaching of the Scripture, and that's not what is being taught here. And now here's what one commentator says. Because of the consistent teaching of the Scriptures that salvation is by grace, not by works, and because of the clear statements that the true believer is eternally secure, and then he quotes John 3.16, and other scriptures, two of which I'll just mention briefly now. He says, verse 5 cannot imply the possibility of a child of God ever being lost. And the verses that he quotes, one of them is John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And you'll notice there, whoever hears my word believes him who sent me What's the next word? Has eternal life. It doesn't say will have, does it? It says has eternal life. So whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent, sent me, Jesus is saying, has present possession eternal life. If you can lose that eternal life, it's not very eternal, is it? In fact, it's not eternal at all. Present possession, if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life. Nobody can ever take that away, or it's not eternal. If that's the only thing that was ever written in the Scriptures about it, we'd be assured of our salvation. But there's more. I'll just quote one other Scripture. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. You know this. As soon as I start reading this, you'll understand it. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Nobody's going to snatch us out of Jesus' hand or the Father's hand. All state good hands? No. God the Father and God the Son, good hands. Eternal security. Jesus says he will confess the overcomer or the conqueror's name before his father and the angels. The clear lesson from Sardis, don't imitate what a Christian should be. Be what a Christian should be. It's easy to fool somebody else, but Jesus will not be fooled. Some of us need to wake up. Picture yourself caught in a blizzard. Sleep seems so welcome. Drowsiness is setting in. Death is imminent. And Jesus shouts out in the storm, Wake up! 
Some of you did, literally, but that's... I didn't take names. Is your name in that Lamb's book of life? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus? If you have, you can be sure you'll never be condemned. God doesn't make mistakes. Jesus knows. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again as this morning, we're looking at situations where people can get lulled into something that is not reality. We can get lulled into thinking that because we have a good reputation, that means that everything's okay. But you've told us that we're like a hollow place in the ground. It should be covered over and made level and made safe, but it's not. The hole is still there. We're like those containers of milk that are not complete. Please help us to do exactly what you've told us to do. Help us to wake up. Help us to strengthen what is there and follow through on all of those things you've told us to do with the idea that we may need to repent. We may need to make changes. And that's the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Help us to be sensitive. Help us to listen. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.